podcast for our new listeners i am one of your hosts daryl pace and the guy that you can't see but he is sitting next to me is byron pace my brother and if you didn't know as well the show has now been going for over two years just about to mention that we we actually had a celebratory celebratory brownie birthday cake we did made by beth thank you beth (laughs) yeah uh which we had on our instagram story a couple days ago yeah i actually can't believe we've been doing this for two years bringing stories from the uk and around the globe it honestly does not feel like two years and it's been out without fail every two weeks for that whole period of time i think there's been one occasion where it's been a day late one occasion and that's i think uh, we were in the middle of nowhere i think we were on sky and the broadband was so slow that we it was going to take a full day to upload so we did it it was faster to drive back (laughs) to the east coast of scotland five hours away. five hours away than it was to upload it yeah Um, but apart from that we've haven't haven't missed a show date uh, and while we're at it, we should just say thank you very much to every single one of you who is listening right now, uh, because the only way that we can continue doing this is by you guys downloading the show. Yeah, I mean, we don't like speaking to nobody, so yeah. it, it it really, we from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for listening, thank you for sharing. It's been an awesome two years, and I hope we can continue to do it for another two years, ten years, twenty years, who knows, it might be really old by then. We have a great show lined up for you today. We always have a great show. Uh, but this show is one that we've been working on for a little bit of time. Uh, it took a little while to get the logistics sorted. But we have, I want to call it a head-to-head, but it's not really a head-to-head. But we do have a representative of the RSPB, and we have a representative of the GWCT. Uh, Adam Smith is speaking for GWCT, and we have Duncan Ewing, um for the RSPB, who are basically both heads of their positions in the respective organisations in Scotland. Now, I should just say, before we really get into this, that I might... Uh, Daryl wasn't there recording this, so I went down to the offices in Perth and recorded it there. And I might come under maybe a little bit of criticism for not being maybe as hard as I could have been and not coming up with a list of things, especially the sort of the pro-shooting portion of people who listen to the show saying, might say, why didn't I attack the RSPB more than I, I did here? But what I would say to that is that we need to be able to have open dialogue with people and organizations. And you do have to be fair. And we do have to be fair. And... We left that debate and that discussion in a position where we can come back and have another one. Uh, Duncan was very willing to come and, and really dig into some of the specific topics that we maybe didn't have time to get into. I didn't really get into any low ground stuff and we really wanted to. We talked about it a little bit off air uh, before we started recording. And, and he wants to have those discussions with us and that is really important. We've kept the dialogue open. If I'd gone into that and basically sat there with a whole list of stuff that was attacking them for everything that you could imagine that we maybe disagree with, I probably wouldn't have the opportunity to have those debates and discussions again. So, yes, there was probably some things I should have asked more in-depth questions. But but there's always another time. There is another time, and that's what we basically created here. And what we have is, uh, I think, an, an open, frank, and honest discussion from both sides of the fence 
but in a way that was constructive. And yeah. that's what we wanted to and do. And informative, as in this is this is informed things you're hearing about. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, what I should say to all the listeners is if, if you're listening to this, whether it be something that Duncan says or something that Adam says that you don't agree with and maybe I didn't come back on, remember that I can't know everything. We can't know everything when we're We've talked discussing. About before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if someone makes a statement that I don't know the answer to and I can't don't, at my fingertips have um, something, a rebuttal for it and evidence I can't really go and attack it, but you can in hindsight. So if there's something you listen to and you think, I really don't agree with that, go go and find out yourself and send us an email. Let us know. Send us Which the paper. Which many of you do. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Uh, send us a link to some scientific paper or some bit of research which proves that whatever is being said is wrong. And that is brilliant. That's what we want you to do. And it helps educate us. And then next time we have a chance to have a discussion, I can take that to the table. Yep, definitely. Um, so that is kind of a taster of what we're about to talk about. Their actual, what their position is within the organization, they're going to introduce themselves, they're going to talk about that, so you'll get a flavor before we get into what I think is about an hour and a half of discussion, Daryl. Try an hour 40 is it? or 40, 55 or something, yeah. yeah. I have actually just listened to the whole thing because I've just edited it myself, and it is a fantastic show. Everybody should enjoy the show, and it is definite listening if you are involved in country sports of any form or you like wildlife yeah. uh, you, you, we've got both sides of it we've got both sides of it listen to the show I, I think, and share it and definitely share it and I think this is probably the first time well especially an extended period of time that these topics have been talked about on radio medium I think you're I think you're right actually the only time I've seen kind of head to heads go was the parliamentary debate yeah. which wasn't a really sort of open and free forum for this kind of extended discussion I don't think I've ever seen both sides both sides of the the uh, the fence with proper backed up science where we can actually have a discussion for this length of time. So. I've got a question for everyone because it actually comes up about halfway through. So you, it's about an hour in and the answer is in there because they, they talk about it. Uh, and you can mull over it. Most people probably already know. What are the three species that change white in the winter in Scotland? Yes. That's a good one. The answer is in here in, in mm. an hour. Just think about it while so you can you're, think about it for yeah. the next forty minutes yeah. so you find out. Yeah. Uh, right. Let's get on to competition prize winners. So we oh. ran. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say for uh, any new listeners, there is prizes every two weeks. So yes. But we're just a way to go into it now. Um, two weeks ago, the competition was to basically put up one of our desktop backgrounds. So for those of you who don't know, if you go and visit thepacebrothers.com, along with a lot of other cool stuff being there and a shop. Uh, there is free downloads, and in the free downloads, every couple of weeks or when we have a when we have a minute, we upload a new free desktop background. It's got our little Pace Brothers logo on it, and it's just it's a whole screed of really cool pictures that we've taken over um, the last normal. I think all the ones up there right now are over the last twelve months yeah. over different parts of the world. Uh, and all you had to do was actually go and put that on your desktop and comment below in the post to show us that you had it on your computer. And then we just picked the person yeah, at random. Uh, the prize was to win a CZ polo shirt and a Hornady baseball cap. And the winner is Richard Orr. Good job. Congrats, get, Richard. Get in contact with us, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. Uh, it is normally in the description of the show. If not, just fire us a message on social media. Uh, new competition. We have uh, another set of Smith Optics glasses. Uh, they are another interchangeable lens set. They're 
safety uh, safety glasses for shooting. They're mil spec. Uh, this one has a clear lens and a shaded lens. It comes in a very nice case. Uh, lifetime guarantee on them. And I actually, the guarantee is not from us. It's from no, the company. it's from, from the company. Uh, and I actually have uh, managed to. I was going to say steal, but liberate one of the sets of Smith Optics glasses because mine broke. Uh, not my Smith Optics one. My sunglasses broke, and I have, I'm now wearing one of the Smith Optics glasses uh, on a day-to-day basis. But these ones are the actual shooting glasses version of them. And if you want to win these, all you have to do, incredibly simple, is find the post either on um, Instagram or on Facebook and just tag a friend underneath it. Yeah. So, simple as that. Because we want everybody to hear and listen to this podcast because it is so important. Mm-hmm. Anything else going Two on? Two more things. Uh, a really big announcement from us about a week ago. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Did we mention it on the last show, actually? We, we, we didn't have the full details out. Ah, we didn't. Okay. So the full details are now out for this. We have launched, in conjunction with the Northern Shooting Show, the first UK hunting film festival. All of the details for this are on our website, thepacebrothers.com. Click the film tab along the bottom, or it's actually on the main homepage. You will see DNA Film Festival. Click the link, go and read all about it. There's a press release download in there as well. And if you go and search on Facebook, DNA Film Festival, there is a dedicated Facebook page to it. We want to hear your great stories about hunting, conservation, sustainable harvest, all those great messages that hunters should be portraying um, to the rest of the hunting community and the general public at large, those are the kind of films we want to see made. Two categories, amateur, professional, and it, it's open globally. There is prizes, big prizes, uh, so you can check them out on the website. And uh, well, everything else is there, so yeah, everything don't need to that tell you, you anymore. It's, uh, it is incredibly exciting for us to have the chance to launch this uh, in conjunction with the, with the Northern Shooting Show and the winners, as well as the prizes, will be shown on the big, big screen in the main hall, the main arena at the Northern Shooting Show on both days. It sits right above the main entrance, and last year we had one of our films shown on it, and it, it pulled in a crowd underneath there. So you're yeah. going to reach a lot of people if you enter this. So spread the word. Uh, and the very last thing I want to mention before we get into this is, um, especially this is relevant for our listeners in Scotland, or in fact anybody who um, shoots up here, is that the sporting rates valuations went out, uh, I think about a week ago now from when this podcast was going out, which was the essentially the, the tax on land and sporting values. There, It is fairly complicated and we have all the information that you will need to know on that coming up uh, in a podcast very soon. We're going to be speaking basically to an accountant who knows exactly what is going on. We're going to try and strip out all of the emotion of it and we're and all the BS and just give you the hard numbers. What does it mean for anybody who owns land in Scotland? What are you going to end up having to pay? So we're, we're going to try and deliver that fairly soon. I'll try and get it recorded sometime this month. Now we jump into the show. Uh, it's very important. We are talking about 
Scotland in this uh, show, but it's all relevant to everything within the UK and actually conservation around the world because that's what it is. It's looking at uh, particular areas, uh, the, the wildlife management in that area, what's going wrong, what's happening, uh, what species are thriving, what what species are not thriving, what's man doing wrong, etc., etc., etc. So even though we are talking about Scotland, it is very relevant to all over the world about management processes and, and so on. So Byron has a little spiel because we have a large amount of listeners that are uh, from south of the border and from the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, who might not know who the organizations, the organizations are, are um, and what they're really talking about. So uh, the RSPB, uh, Duncan or Ewing, is representing uh, representing them. I actually only found this out just a minute ago when I was looking up actually how they started. But the RSPB started to stop the trade in plumes for women's hats, which are like big fanciful plumes on, on women's hats, uh, way, way back. Uh, from birds such as the birds of paradise, who were become, uh, which were becoming endangered. So that's actually how they started. But today, uh, they're much more about the general protection of bird species. And particularly here, we see them championing a lot of uh, birds of prey. You'll hear us talk about it in uh, this podcast, but the hen harrier is their sort of um, species that they, they hold up uh, and in a particularly high regard. The GWCT, on the other hand, the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, um, and I'm just going to read you the spiel straight from their website. Uh, it's the first thing that comes up if you look at what they're about. Uh, they use science to promote game and wildlife management as an essential part of nature conservation. So both looking at slightly different aspects, but both looking at it from a conservation point of view. Uh, and of course, both these organizations, in terms of a UK context, um, are found north and south of the border, exactly, Wales yeah. and Ireland. Yeah. Um, and that's it. Uh, this co- podcast is brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. Uh, you hear us say that every single podcast. If you want to know a bit more about them, Google it. Go check out their website. Um, you will have heard from both uh, Alex and Jules, um, a director and head of policy on the podcast. At some point in the last 12 months, I think they've both been on. So just go, go back, find them, and you'll be able to have a listen. Enjoy the show. Gentlemen, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to join us on the show. I thought the best way to start this by way of introduction was just to give each of you in turn a, a moment just to explain who you are, what your role is, and, and sort of a potted history of, of how you've got there. So Adam, if, if you, if you want to pick up the mantle there. Uh, well, I'm Dr. Adam Smith, and I'm Director Scotland currently for the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. Um, how on earth did I get there is a, is a good question that many people ask. Uh, I was a serial student for many years. Uh, I took my first degree in plant biology and geography at St Andrews, and I got there fascinated in the expansion of bracken onto Heather Moorland. I then did a master's at Aberdeen and um, was lucky enough to work with some very exciting folk who allowed me to access peregrine falcon nests and see what they were eating in and around moorland areas again. So the the upland theme was beginning to build. Um, I then went to work for the Swedish Hunters Association whilst I did my doctorate at Oxford University. And there I looked at sustainable hunting of willow grouse populations. 
uh, most particularly really, was the current system of hunting sustainable and how could one make it a bit more sustainable? That, I mean, effectively, I therefore had a sort of a, quite a, an uphill trajectory. And um, more or less as soon as I finished my PhD, I started to work for the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, Game Conservancy as was, uh, in their Upland Research Group. Uh, a few years ago now, eight, eight, nine years ago, I was seduced by the dark side when I thought that a lot of the work that um, many organisations do, including the GWCT, wasn't really getting presented effectively enough inside the policy setting so that people could make good decisions about the information that we that we had generally. And uh, so I came to work in the uh, policy and uh, sort of advisory group and eventually I've moved up to be truly seduced by the dark side and I have to look after fundraising as well. So there, there we go. That's that's how I'm uh, in in this business. And I've I've had a love of the hills for my, my entire life and I've been one of those sickening people, very lucky to do what is practically a hobby. <laughs> it, it is nice to be in that position. Uh, Duncan, over to you. Yeah, so um, a reasonably similar sort of trajectory, actually, although I've come probably in the opposite direction from moving... Uh, from sort of a more of a business focus in my past through to uh, getting closer to my hobby latterly. So uh, my background is uh, I originally trained as a chartered surveyor. Uh, so I worked in commercial and land management, uh, valuation and all that goes with chartered surveying. Um, I'm qualified chartered surveyor. But then about 25 years ago, I moved to work for the RSPB and I've worked for the RSPB uh, in three locations in Scotland. I gradually moved south in Scotland. So I started in Inverness, where I was responsible for overseeing the red kite reintroduction, uh, which was the first uh, reintroduction of that species uh, into the UK, along with a pro similar project in the south of England. Uh, and latterly, obviously, there have been further reintroductions in other places. Subsequently, I moved to be the RSPB's representative in southwest Scotland, uh, covering sort of much of Loch Lomond and the Trossachs, uh, the central belt of Scotland, Ayrshire and Lanarkshire. Uh, and latterly, from about the turn of the century, I moved across to Edinburgh to our Scottish headquarters. Uh, I'm a member of the where I became a member of the Scottish management team. And I have a very diverse responsibility now and a very interesting responsibility, really, which ranges from our nature reserve management. So we own or manage uh, about 77 sites uh, in Scotland, nearly 80,000 hectares of land, uh, clearly links with my land agency and chart surveying background there. Uh, but I'm also lead on our species recovery, species policy our investigations work, that's working with the police to follow, follow up wildlife crime, uh, and also our advisory work, which we were talking a bit about earlier, and that's working with land managers to deliver for key species and habitats. So a very di diverse remit. Mm. But like Adam, more behind the desk these days probably <laughs> yes. than actually out on the ground doing real stuff. Yes, the desk <laughs> seems to be getting further away, although you've been very good at making sure your tummy doesn't keep you too far away from the desk. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really excited by the prospect of having two people sitting around a table with me who do have such an in-depth knowledge, you know, respective knowledge from your history and with regard to what you do today and, and the roles within your respective organizations. 
Uh, I think we'll probably end up spending most of our time talking about Upland, although just from what we were talking about uh, off air before we started recording, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about low ground as well because it's, it's very relevant to what both of you do. I want to start with the thing that I want to talk least about because I think that it, it kind of muddies a lot of discussions, uh, which is Raptor Persecution. Um, so we can we can get that sort of done, dusted out of the way. So that I think we can we can. Oh, it's a very important issue. There's a lot of other things to be discussed, uh, which I think there'll be common ground and things that maybe uh, the three of us d- don't agree on. Raptor persecution or illegal killing of raptors is something which, by definition of what I've just said, is illegal. So we all know that it shouldn't go on. We all know that there has been evidence of it happening. So. Dung, if I just throw it back to you, you could, and I, if I allow you just to paint a picture of what your view is of, of what we have happening, and then I can um, throw it over to Adam after, and then we can try and put this aspect to, to bed, because it's, we know that it's something that shouldn't go on. Okay, I mean, yeah, I mean, the common, common issue, this is, you know, it is a wildlife crime to kill birds of prey. Birds of prey have been protected since the 1950s, Um, I mean, I would like to give a bit of a historical perspective here because I've been involved with, as you heard earlier, conservation of birds of prey in Scotland since about the early 1990s where I was involved with the red kite uh, reintroduction on the Black Isle. And, you know, what I've seen in that, even that relatively short period of time up until now, is what I would describe as an improvement in the situation in in terms of, uh, uh, you know, bird of prey populations that are recovering uh, in much of lowland Scotland. So, you know, birds like the buzzard are now common. The common buzzard, it's it's what it says on the tin. It should be a should be a common bird, and it is now to a large extent over much of lowland Scotland, uh, which is indicative of a decline, in my view, of uh, illegal persecution, which is very welcome. Um, we've also seen the recovery of some other birds of prey, bird of prey species, some like the red kite, which have had to be reintroduced. I've got loads of them yeah. near me. <laughs> yeah, other other birds like um, the osprey, which uh, is pretty uncontentious as, as species go, but uh, returned to breed in Scotland in the 1950s. And we now have a healthy, robust population of over 250 breeding pairs of ospreys in Scotland. Uh, some other woodland species are also on the road to recovery. Birds like the goshawk, for example, uh, beginning to make a comeback. And this is all welcome, uh, but you know what we see now, I think, is an increased, uh, increasingly sort of polarised problem uh, in parts of the uplands of Scotland. It's not everywhere, um, but what we see is a link clearly to land that is managed for driven grouse shooting, in particular. Um, we've just had the publication of uh, a Scottish government report uh, analysing the fate of satellite tag golden eagles which showed a third of the golden eagles, about 140 birds that had been tagged, and a third of those had disappeared in what were called suspicious circumstances uh, in various parts of the upland. But there is a strong pattern to where these birds are disappearing, and that report also made clear links to uh, uh, you know, confirmed instances of wildlife crime that have taken place over the past 20 years. I mean, just to say, in the past 20 years, we've recorded nearly 800 confirmed incidents of illegal 
uh, of crimes against birds of prey. And we've been one of the few organisations out there that's actually documented all of this stuff. Well, uh, sorry to interrupt yeah. you there, but is, is, are you able to say if that 800 has all been directly related to, to shooting activities or not? Uh, not all of those. But what we can say is that um, during that period, I mean, what we have identified is those those nearly 800 incidents took place on about 200 land holdings across Scotland. Um, but there is a clear distribution, if you look at all of the maps of where these incidents are occurring, there is a clear coincidence, with, particularly with areas of the uplands in the east and south of the country, and these areas are largely managed for driven grouse shooting. And that is becoming even more obvious now as the situation in the, in the lowlands improves. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah, as I uh, said uh, by way of introduction to this, illegal persecution is illegal, and by virtue of that, it shouldn't go on. Uh, from my point of view, we should, if anything, be doing more to identify exactly who's doing it and, and put an end to it. But I understand that that is, you know, that that is very difficult. It's very difficult to identify exactly where those issues are. It might not, uh, if it's occurring on, uh, I say this hypothetically, if it's occurring on the state, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the entire state. It could be one individual within that. And often it is the, the actions of individual people that really muddy the view, especially in the sort of the gamekeeping and, and shooting circles of everybody. Uh, Adam, what do you have to to say in response to that? I mean, I suppose beyond beyond the fact that it shouldn't happen. Well, exactly. But it is worth restating that. I mean, there is no land management system that can be sustainable if it uh, indulges in uh, illegal activities. Uh, that is as true for farming systems as it is for sporting systems as well. So uh, we're very clear on that. And I think the GWCT is equally clear that we wish to see favourable conservation status for birds of prey. They are a very important part of our national assemblage. People love them for themselves. They love them for the uh, potential for actually uh, tourism revenue. We should love them for what they actually contribute to, to the ecosystem as a whole. I think we tend to look at the, um, the whole question of why there is illegality through a complex series of prisms at the Trust, and we try to understand the nature of the why, and then come up with some practical and sensible propositions that might actually do something about uh, resolving it. And I, I mean, I'm sat here in front of a piece of uh, a folder, which actually says more grouse, more harriers on it. Um, it's quite an old piece of artwork, it extends back into the mid 90s. But this is a, a piece of this is almost an ethos that we, we still stand up for. And in fact, Duncan is sitting in front of the Langamore Demonstration Project report, uh, which the two organisations, GWCT and RSPB, were both involved in that attempted to actually find resolutions to, to these uh, activities. So one must deplore the illegality, but one must, uh, I believe, as certainly as a research organisation, try to understand that illegality and come up with some practical propositions for how you can actually resolve it maintain favourable conservation status and on the other side maintain the good things that sporting estates can and indeed should deliver in the countryside. Because there's no point, uh, I don't think in any context, in being um, focused on one single objective. I think the, 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 the way forward 
is to have a very broad uh, view of what one is trying to use your landscape for. If it is useful to, to hang your management activity on a particular species, I think actually both the organisations applaud that, but it mustn't distort what you're trying to do uh, in Which the Which must be beyond a single species. Correct. Okay. Uh, if we, if I, I carry on from that to very much a single species, because it, it is the, the species in terms of um, persecution, not so much up here, but certainly south of the border, the Hen Harrier, uh, which is particularly relevant to uh, the, the Langham project, which uh, you're sitting in front of the, the report there, um, Duncan. Can um, well, Duncan, can you give us an overview of what we saw with Hen Harriers? in that, uh, that example of, of, of the Langham, Langham project in terms of what happened during that process and maybe an overview of what we're looking at, generally speaking, across the whole country with hen harriers. And the reason why I want to spend a little bit of time on this is just simply because it, it, it is the bird, it is the issue that comes up so, so often. It is, but I have to slightly take issue with the question in the first instance. I mean, just to say that in Scotland we know that illegal persecution of raptors is affecting the populations of a number of species, not just the, the hen harry. I mean, we've had reports recently that flagged up the, uh, you know, the issues relating to golden eagles. Um, my own species that I've worked on for years, the red kite, its population in Scotland is seriously limited by illegal killing as well. I mean, over a hundred red kites have been killed since reintroductions, illegally killed since reintroductions began in Scotland, a species that poses no threat to any land use uh, interests whatsoever. So, you know, it's not just one species. The hen harrier is kind of the often the species that is flagged up, and that's partly because it is a species that does eat red grouse. Everybody acknowledges that. Hen harriers are not vegetarians, not, nor are other raptors. You know, they will take uh, uh, game birds. Um, but the concern, really, and this is where, you know, conversations become very difficult because if, if, of course, all of these species were much more commoner than they are, then we'd be, ha be able to have uh, perhaps a more enlightened discussion and talk more actively about species management and some of the issues well, that, we that, that to, concern yeah. us. But when birds like the hen harrier are so rare, I mean, in England this year, I believe there were only three breeding pairs of hen harriers when we know the you know the 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 capability of the habitat is for probably many hundreds of pairs of hen harrier and in Scotland you know similarly in the east and south of Scotland I mean you know the hen harrier is on the verge of disappearing as a breeding bird I mean Langham is actually the one bright spot for hen harriers in the south and east of east of the country uh, of course in the west of Scotland and on Orkney where we have some land holdings you know the picture for hen harriers is much better I mean there are over 100 breeding pairs of hen harriers uh, on Orkney out of a population of about 500 breeding pairs uh, in Scotland so in the west and the north hen harriers are doing reasonably well expanding their range but in the east and the south they're doing very badly, even though we know that this is often their preferred habitat. There's plenty of food and habitat available for these birds in that area. And the main explanation for this, as we're finding out, uh, you know, ground truthing through the likes of satellite tagging work that's going on now, is illegal persecution. Both Adam and I have been involved in, in the Langham Moor demonstration project. And both of us, I think, we believe that jaw-jaw is better than... <laughs> 
war war in these circumstances. We do quite a lot of it. And we we do a lot of it. (laughs) And both our organisations have been involved for many years in trying to find solutions to some of the problems. So we know at Langham, during the first joint Raptor study in the 1990s, that hen harriers, uh, you know, reduced the viability of the the shooting operation there by by dint of the fact that their population increased to such a level. They were eating, you know, too many grouse for the, uh, the shooting operation to continue there. Latterly, I have to say, in the more recent project, and we've been working at it for 10 years. In fact, the current Langham project is just coming to an end uh, in October, but with more writing up of the project outputs to come. Uh, we've found that the population never ha- has not incre- of hen harries has not increased to anywhere like the population that we had during the joint rapt study, where the population got up to about 25, 26 breeding pairs, the maximum I think we've had during the 10 years of the project uh, over the past 10 years is about 10 breeding pairs. And actually, you know, we have seen grouse numbers at levels which used to be uh, deemed sufficient almost for driven grouse shooting. I mean, when Peter Hudson from the GWCT used to talk about a driven grouse density of about autumn density of about 60 grouse per square kilometre. We've been, I mean, we've had nearly 120 grouse per square kilometre autumn densities at Langham. So, you know, conceivably we could have found a a balance, but all of that is still to be worked up and reported on. I'm going to pass that over to to Adam just just in a moment to to respond to that. But I just want to throw uh, two questions to you because I wouldn't be forgiven for not asking these um, for for those people who are listening to this. Uh, The first being that, is it not true that the RSPB has not had a particularly high success rate yourselves on on your own managed reserves for hen harriers? Well, this is just simply not true. I mean, we hold, a, I think it's about 45 breeding pairs. We did a, I'm just trying to remember the exact figure, but it's 45 breeding pairs of harriers on our own land. Um, most of those are actually in Scotland, on our sites on Isla, Orkney, elsewhere. Um, but the issue that we have in other parts of the UK, including in England, is the with the population in such a small uh, in in a parlous position with so few birds around, it is very difficult to get hen harriers on your own ground when, you know, round about you, hen harriers are being illegally killed. You know, hen harriers don't respect boundaries if they're breeding on your land and going on to somebody else's land who is actually killing them, then you're not going to have hen harriers for very long. And my second uh, question for a response for you is with regard to the tagging and then disappearing of hen harriers, which then might be classed as disappearing under suspicious circumstances. It is true that there has been one or two cases like that, that it has turned out not to be the case. There was one last year, if my memory serves me correctly, where there was something, uh, a bird went missing. It was said suspicious circumstances. Six months later, it turns up. Obviously, that is just one instance, but you must admit the fact that sometimes you must you won't know what's happening and maybe conclusions have been jumped to that shouldn't yeah. have been. Yeah, exactly. But we have to say that these tags, I mean, we're talking about military-grade equipment here with a very high reliability rate. I mean, it's not just us that tag birds, GWCT tag Woodcock and things like that. Um, but these tags have a very high reliability rate. Sometimes, I mean, I think uh, we found in the Golden Eagle study reported a 96% uh, reliability rate of these tags. Um, you know, occasionally, 
you know, birds will disappear, the tags malfunctioning. But what I have to say is usually you get an indication before that tag packs in as to whether it's malfunctioning from the signals you're getting back. So you know which ones have probably, uh, you know, uh, are not functioning properly. But what we are seeing, and this has been emphasised by the Golden Eagle report, is tags that were functioning absolutely correctly then suddenly completely disappear off the screen. And, uh, you know, this should not be happening. I mean, in normal circumstances, you are able to recover these birds, find the tags. I mean, we had a bird, the hen harrier that was tagged on the Isle of Man recently that uh, ended up crashing into the sea during its migration. We recovered that dead bird off the beach in Dumfries and Galloway with its tag. As a matter of interest, <laughs> what, what was the reason for that? Did it just die in flight? Or? Um, I'm assuming it's entirely natural causes. I mean, you know, harriers, we know their post-fledging survival rate is not the best amongst raptors. I mean, they, you know, they, they do die of natural causes as well as uh, illegal persecution. Uh, I don't know if I can, if you can try, try and pick, we, we've covered a lot of ground there. Yeah, I was going to just sweep that one up there. I mean, we, I? you can maybe by, by a way of getting back at uh, I, th- I think the segue's got to be through, through Langham. Through Langham, yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's, there, there was, there is, I mean, I know that the, there, there's a lot of information to come out from what, what's going on now. There, obviously, the information has been well digested from the, the first Langham project. Um, so maybe you can pick that up. What I would would like you to sort of go towards is the the idea at the end of that of viable grouse populations and viable raptor and hen harrier, specifically what we're talking about here, populations, and what you do to manage that in an ideal world. I mean, clearly the conflict there was harrier populations got to a point where it just wasn't economically viable and although it doesn't get mentioned as much as I think maybe it should do, should do the economic viability for the, the, the people of an area and those communities is is an integral part of uh, a conservation plan uh, well it's, there are three pillars to sustainability which is a, is a sustainability is a human sort of construct um, but it relies on both an environmental pillar a social pillar and an economic pillar and, and things are sustainable in that context, typically. I mean, that's how it's perceived. So one one views um, sustainability like that. The Lang, the original work that was done at Langham was known as the Joint Raptor Study, uh, and in fact, that was one of my gateways into this business. I was a, I did my master's project um, looking at how peregrines responded to their prey availability as part of that original Joint Raptor Study back when dinosaurs still roamed the earth. And it was a fascinating project, very, very well researched, and it showed that um, primarily hen harrier um, predation on red grouse populations could indeed suppress a cyclical recovery. That was the the really important point. Um, it wasn't purely hen harriers, um, and I think it's commonly forgotten that actually peregrine falcons, particularly through the overwinter mortality component, the number of red grouse they killed during the winter for food, did play a, a small, a minor bit part role in that. But the story became focused around the Harriers and the way that they suppressed this grouse population recovery. And I think uh, that was a very interesting finding in its own right. It wasn't enough really to persuade uh, policymakers that there was a role for hen harrier um, management in that context, however, at that point. And I think we were probably still seeing the recovery of the Harrier population. And this is something that we don't talk about equally very often at all. Back in the 
1910s, 20s, 30s, harriers were restricted in Scotland effectively to Orkney uh, and pretty much the, a few... There, there was widespread persecution because it wasn't wide, legal. Widespread persecution because it wasn't illegal. But, so they were restricted at that point. But from that point forward, they have, they've expanded their population and their range to the current around about 600 level, depending on which national, which national survey and within the bounds of confidence you actually look at it. So it has been a remarkable recovery of, of the Harrier population. And it's probably not surprising that we should then start to see the, the conflict with some of the land interests that, that, that are currently occupying the space. One of the challenges, particular challenges in the UK is that Harriers love nesting in heather. Across much of their range, they actually like nesting in long, thick grass um, and and sites like that. But in in, in Scotland and, and England, they appear to like to nest in heather, and that may well be something to do with the fact that they find an abundance of prey, uh, not just red grouse, but meadow pipits and voles. And that is the, the conflict point. Because what we discovered is that here they are, the harriers settle out in these habitats, which are full of prey, because that's all they see. They don't, they're not making judgments about the land use particularly. They've got a nice um, bed of heather to nest upon. And they successfully breed. And not only, they don't just successfully breed because there's lots of things to feed their chicks, but they successfully breed because actually their chicks aren't predated themselves. And just maybe just elaborate on the major predators. I mean, well, it's ground nesting birds. It seems to be principally foxes. Um, is is the one that we've got the vast majority of evidence for. Um, and that's not just from projects like uh, Langham over many years, but it's actually from other sites, um, Isla, for example. Um, there are reports of, of, of other harriers taking uh, harrier chicks in the nests, but it's probably a tiny proportion. It's generally speaking, it appears to be an impact of typically foxes. Um, and this came home to roost after the, the end of the joint raptor study when the grouse population had, had failed to recover because of the suppression by the raptor predation. And the keepering team was withdrawn by the Baclua Estates, who have been exceptional partners for, for our organisations over the years in, in helping to try and understand this process. And I should we should flag that up, actually. They have been amazing. They withdrew the keepers because there really wasn't an economic reason for them to be there any longer. And um, the next few years, through the early 2000s, um, became have become known, at least in the GWCT, uh, as the wilderness years, when Langham saw a spectacular fall uh, in terms of both, well, in terms of, of its environmental quality, certainly. So its, its heather started to retreat as, great, as sheep numbers went up on the hill because that became the principal economic driver. Um, the population of harriers slipped back from the extremely high levels that were achieved during the joint raptor study, partly probably because of loss of prey, but partly probably because of predation on the ground. And we saw a spectacular collapse in other bird species as well. Um, so there was the practical extinction of the lapwing, for example, which was extraordinary. When I was there in the early 90s, Langham was a tremendous place to see wading birds by... 10, 15 years later, the tall intensive pups has gone from large chunks of that range. So this wasn't a, a happy situation for anybody. It wasn't a happy situation for the estate, who were clearly losing value. It wasn't a happy situation for our organisation, because um, we wanted to show that, in fact, 
driven grouse shooting could in fact produce both a sustainable population of harriers and a sustainable population of waders and grouse. And it wasn't a happy situation for the RSPB. So we re-engaged in the Langham project and we threw effectively everything at Langham. We threw a, pr a proper keepering team at Langham using all the tools that a, a normal inverted commas keepering team would use. And as Duncan said, we, we actually began to see a rise in the grouse population until it became apparently capped by combinations probably of predation pressure, weather, maybe locally some limited constraint on the habitat because there's, there's no question that there was marginally less heather left at, at Langham even during that project because of the previous year's depredations by the sheep. We never really got to the level where there was a sustainable driven harvest, the sort of harvest that would persuade other driven moors that it was a feasible proposition to go on. Um, From an economic point of view? Well, yes, from an economic point of view, but it, but grouse shooting is not a, just about economics. It's a much more complicated uh, series of psychological propositions. I mean, there is a deep, deep love of the hill by people who invest in grouse shooting. Um, yes, a lot of them wish to see a return in the sense that it's nice, to, nice for anything to wash its face so it's not costing you money. Um, so all of those things have to be brought into the into the balance. And, I mean, the 60 grouse per square kilometre that Peter Hudson came up with in the early 80s, well, that's 30-odd years ago now. Um, that 60 grouse per square kilometre was, was based on 30 years ago's costs. And actually to get to a driven position where, in fact, you get even close, remotely close to break-even, you're looking at a substantially higher grouse density, at least double. And that's really, unfortunately, where... The grouse population at Langham just about not quite failed to hit. So we didn't quite manage to make that sort of golden point where, in fact, we had a population of harriers that was being diversionary fed, a very novel, interesting technique for Langham. So where there are not too many harriers and where they nest quite close to access points, diversionary feeding does indeed appear to reduce the number of grouse chicks being taken. It's not a one-size-fit-all fix, but for Langham, it was interesting. But we couldn't get the grouse population to go up any any higher. And the reason for that is somewhat unclear, but it does appear to be associated with predation levels on the grouse, probably by a range of predators that the keepers couldn't do anything with, and therefore probably something to do with raptors. But there is a certain sense of uncertainty around that. So we, we are left with the many of the questions that we started out with <laughs> yeah. still slightly unresolved, but a clear position or a clearer view that actually if we could find a way of um, intercepting predation pressure on red grouse, allowing the grouse to even get a little bit higher so that a, a, a reasonable sustainable harvest can be taken off, one that is close to cost recovery, then we have a very sensible, coherent argument to make to driven grouse shooting generally, that actually here is a strategy that allows you to recover your grouse should they fall to low densities. And that's really the critical point. I think there's a huge risk perceived by the industry that actually if they don't keep on top of predator pressure all the time, when the grouse does go down and it is still a wild bird, they will never get it back. 
And that's indeed what two projects at Langham appears to tell them. So the ability to, to lift the grouse up to a point where you can take a sustainable harvest should allow us to, to have the conversation and say, well, actually, your grouse are now in a, in a functional position. How are we going to make sure that we have favourable conservation status of the birds of prey? Duncan, from what we've heard here, from what you've said and what, uh, from what Adam has said, we clearly have a situation where some of or some or all of the management principles that are u- were used in this instance help the pro- uh, proliferation of raptors. We've specifically here been talking about hen harriers. What is it that you would like to see or how would you like to see those principles? Uh, predominantly, what my mind goes to here is the predator control and what that does for ground nesting birds like, like hen harriers. How would you like to see that shaped so that we can end up in this, this place, this, this special place uh, that Adam is talking about where we can have both? I understand that that's a very difficult yeah. question. That's where we it, well, we're it is to a difficult to. question, and it has it has various facets. I mean, one thing to say from Langham is that the diversionary feeding work that we've developed during the project, which has been written up, uh, was an extremely effective method actually of divers of diverting hen harrier predation away from uh, away from taking grouse chicks. I mean, it's somewhere like nine, over ninety percent effectiveness, which you know should be a good management tool that people can employ if they wish to. Um, we would certainly encourage that. Um, we've, as Adam says, at Langham Moor, we've got a whole series of complex issues at play here. You know, vole populations are clearly a key driver of raptor populations in a way that perhaps we had uh, not understood as well as we should have previously, but we know the likes of some of the Scandinavians and Germans, when they're studying raptor populations, understand this stuff very clearly. Uh, We certainly found that that's one of the key attractions for buzzards uh, coming up onto moorland areas, that they tend to follow where the voles are going. That's what they're interested in. And incidentally, they may take the odd grouse uh, while they're up there, but it's really the the voles that are driving the populations of buzzards and what they're wanting to find in the breeding season. So, you know, we found out a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, we readily acknowledge that legal predator control you know, has benefits for ground nesting birds, for waders and uh, uh, for even for the likes of the hen harrier. But where we do differ is, of course, uh, and our real concern lies, is that, and this has been part of the problem, if you like, of the whole Langham arrangement that we've been in for the past 10 years, is whilst Langham has been proceeding to try and find this middle ground, this compromise, with some success, I feel, and the, the partners certainly generally feel that, Uh, the rest of the grouse industry and other places has been moving in a very different direction. And this is one of the biggest concerns out there. It's what we call intensification of management, where we are seeing uh, more gamekeepers employed, uh, more heather burning, uh, culling of mountain hares, removal of scrub, culling of deer in some places to try and remove tick burdens. Um, You know, this, this management is increasing as adam intimated you know the whole economics around grouse moor management is complex i mean there is the whole element of of prestige in there um most grouse moors i think i'm right in saying don't wash their face economically they come they come at a cost uh, for management people do it 
uh, because they are either interested, as Adam says, in the hills and uh, the outside, or they do it for prestige reasons. They don't often do it for purely, purely economics. But what we are seeing is this drive for ever bigger grouse bags. I mean, the you know, when we started Langham, you know, Maybe we weren't talking about 60 grouse per square kilometre autumn densities, a bit more than that. But now the expectation, I mean, the latest stats are showing that people are expecting nearly, in Scotland, nearly 200 grouse per square kilometre autumn densities. And in England, the figures are around the mid 300s. I mean, even hearing people saying they're achieving over 500 grouse per square kilometre autumn densities. Uh, largely because of the advent of medication, which is now allowing this stuff to happen. But, you know, if we get into this big bag culture, I regret that it's going to be very difficult to find the common ground. And this is where we are saying that this kind of, you know, unsustainable land management activity needs some form of regulation. And our, our proposition is that of licensing, which is now being actively explored by a Scottish government inquiry, which and no doubt we will all be involved with in due course, which looks at how grouse moors in Scotland, at least, can be run or will look at how grouse moors can be run sustainably and within the law. And, you know, frankly, if you are behaving within the law and acting sustainably, we don't think this should be a major threat to you. Um, you know, I don't think, don't think people should have fear from that. If I can ask you, and I understand this is... Uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, yourself at the RSPB are not saying we don't want to see driven grouse shooting. I think that that has been fairly clear. You might want it to, shape, to be shaped differently, but you don't want to see an end to it. If if we say for reasons out with what we've been discussing now, because we, I mean, we are very aware that there is um, an increasing appetite against any kind of any kind of hunting at all. We don't just have to be talking about driven driven uh, grouse shooting. If we didn't see driven uh, grouse shoots and the the uh, consequential moorland management that's associated with them, do you think that that would have a detrimental effect? on species that you concern yourself with uh, in your in your position. Yeah, I mean let let me first be clear that you know we t- we regard hunting sport shooting as legitimate activity. We have we do not have anything against it when it's practiced legally and sustainably. I mean even on our own land we have uh shooting that goes on both wild fowling some grouse shooting that happens on RSPB's estate in Scotland. We have we have no objection to that when all of this is done legally and sustainably. But we are concerned about the illegal and unsustainable activity, which I'm afraid, uh, you know, in quite a lot of fora recently, uh, you know, a strong spotlight has been shown on, uh, shone on actually what is going on on the ground. Uh, research that's showing intensif- intensification of moorland burning, for example, as well as the illegal uh, killing of birds of prey. There is a major public concern out there around culling of mountain hares, which is repeatedly uh, in the spotlight in the Scottish Parliament and elsewhere, and work work going on at the moment to look at how that, that issue can be addressed. So, you know, this isn't just us that are concerned. There are a whole wide range of other public stakeholders who are concerned about you know, some of the uh, routine management practices that now seem to be prevalent in large parts of our, our uplands that are managed for driven grouse shooting, you know. But that isn't to say that, you know, there is a role for predator control. 
I mean, we certainly see, I mean, in the absence of uh, some of the bigger predators that you need to control predators here, I mean, we see this in deer management, without wolves and lynxes about, you know, there has to be some human management of deer populations. Likewise, if we haven't got those those top top apex predators around, there is a need to control foxes and some other predators. We do it also on our own land where there's good evidence of impact on ground nesting birds, particularly wading birds. And wading birds, as Adam alluded to, are increasingly going up the agenda as species of conservation concern and species that we have international responsibility for, the curlew being the most uh, uh, outstanding example where both our organisations are working really hard to get uh, this, this some of the conservation needs of this species addressed and where Scotland has a particular responsibility for safeguarding those populations. But I would go as far to say I, it is going to be very tricky if people out there still think they are going to get licences to control birds of prey or birds of prey are going to be controlled legally in some form when they are str they're struggling, or many species are struggling, like the hen harrier. I mean, I don't think it's ever going to be acceptable that people kill golden eagles, species like that. You know, so, I mean, people need a reality check here. Uh, there are mechanisms out there, licensing to deal with issues if people feel they have a strong case. So, so but, like, uh, buzzards would be the one that would get thrown yeah, up for that. But, but let's be clear, the system is not set up to provide people with licences to control protected species to protect a surplus of driven grouse, for example, for people to shoot at the end of the season. I mean, licences are available to deal with specific conservation problems. I mean, the red grouse, whether you like it or not, is is and I mean I know it's become a red data <laughs> species recently, but it is regarded as generally a common species, and in the places where it's being managed for grouse shooting, it is a common species, a very common species. Um, so it is very unlikely that in those circumstances that SNH or the authorities are going to give licences to control protected species. So we've got to look at other ways of managing these these wrapped populations. And that is where things like diversionary feeding and some of these other conservation management tools come in. But, you know, sadly, I'm afraid many gamekeepers do not appear to have moved with the times. There is a very strong role I would advocate in the future uh, for gamekeeping out there. You know, there are a lot of wildlife management jobs that need doing, you know, controlling non-native species, etc. I could name a number. You know, controlling foxes will always be a need in the uplands. Because but you, you people do, have got to move with the times. You, you, you do that your, yourselves on, on RSPB reserves. We do. Foxes and other predator control. Yeah, foxes. and we employ, I mean, sometimes we, our own staff do it. Sometimes we employ gamekeepers to do that work for us. So, you know, there is a role out there. Adam, feel free to, to respond to, to anything that sort of Duncan's been going through there with, with a view to looking at, and we're going to cover muir burning and, and hares mm. in a little bit, but with a view to where we're sitting here today with everything that we've discussed obviously we need to move forward there's we're in the middle of we're sorry at the end of a grouse season now and there's hopefully mm. going to be one next year paint a picture for me of what we need to do in, in the immediate term or what is happening in the immediate term to address the address these issues i think in the immediate term is uh, the challenge for for me is certainly to to cover something that we've already discussed before which is not to lose the skills and the activity that is actually are making positive contributions. And I, I mean, I, I really welcome the, the RSPB's 
uh, increasing support for um, predator control. I think it's come on the back of quite a lot of time and effort uh, projects that, that we've run, replicated trial experiments that were pretty difficult to, to get away from, excellent pieces of work which showed the role of, of predator control both in the Salisbury Plain area and the Otterburn uh, mil military ranges. Um, and those predator control stories are going to be very, very important. Delivering them in a, in a competent manner is is now the the ultimate aim, um, and we've got to find a a way of ensuring that the people who have got the skills to do that um, competently, quickly, and efficiently, uh, and frankly, to take as few as possible. I mean, we're not talking about uh, this. Shouldn't be a, an open season just willy nilly on on predators. We have a responsibility to the predators as well, but we need the people who can do that. But do you agree, Adam? I think I'm afraid some of the gamekeepers, particularly those that are involved with the driven grouse shooting side of things, you know, there is going to require a mindset change, a culture shift. The you know the negative perception that many of them have about all predators, you know, that I mean, predation is a natural process. You know, it is it is an important process I, out there I, in the countryside. I, I will back I will back the point that you completely made about the fact that if people think that they're going to get licenses to take golden eagles and probably peregrine falcons, they're very much mistaken, and they ought to be very much mistaken because these are fabulous birds, which probably have a very very important role to play, actually. Uh, ironically, in helping the with the production of some of the sustainable sporting goods that you can actually have on the ground, I the was, Harrier's a nice bird too. Harrier's a nice bird too. <laughs> no, I, I, I was really sticking with those two simply because I was struck when I was doing my masters all those years ago uh, by an estate where there were no, there was, well, as far as I, I knew, there was no persecution, and I was struck by the fact that there were seven pairs of peregrines in the on this estate. But that there was a great big hole in the middle of that distribution. So the peregrines were sort of broadly in a ring. And then in the middle of this, there was a great big empty area, despite the fact there were lots of peregrines. In the middle of that area, there was a golden eagle eyrie. The peregrines didn't nest there. They were too small for <laughs> top that. <laughs> Yeah, there was a top bird. And uh, I think there there is a discussion to be had. It's a very challenging one because... Um, how much how much disturbance and impact can a driven grouse operation actually stand? I, I have seen it all too often, the effect of, a, of an eagle going through a, a grouse drive. Um, either grouse scatter wildly in all directions or else they sit very tight indeed and can't be driven. But do you agree, Adam, there um, needs to be a move towards the common ground here? This sort of big bag culture that we've moved to and driven grouse shooting is just, yeah. ultimately, it's not going to be acceptable. I mean, it wouldn't be allowed in most other countries. I mean, I know driven grouse shooting is unique, it's really. Unique, yes. But, so you know, you really speak to people in other countries. I mean, I was in Norway very recently and speaking to hunters there. And they said they would be delighted with an autumn density of 30 willow grouse per square kilometre. And they frankly think, uh, I mean, I, I spoke to a number of them who'd been over here, actually more often deer stalking than grouse shooting, admittedly. But, you know, they, they, they found this wasn't hunting. This, you know, their culture is one of hunting for food, 
not this sporting culture that we have. And they, you know, hunters in other countries find this quite difficult to accept that we work in this way. I think we have to to be quite careful when we talk about, because to what you're doing there is you're saying basically that, and I've done a lot of hunting in Scandinavia, is that because they view our hunting culture differently, that it is necessarily not right. Just the same as that we could go to South America and look at a hunting culture in a tribe that batters a little white sloth up a tree to death with a stick as not palatable to us. I think we have to be quite careful to um, protect very long-standing hunting cultures, as long as they're not at the detriment to uh, that species and other species and and the broader hunting ethics. I, well, I'd I think, be careful with that. I think that's an important point and one thing that has come out very recently, in fact, I mean, there was a report in 2011 by a guy called Mustin, but also more recently the the review that SNH commissioned that uh, went to the Scottish Parliament that looked at hunting systems, licensing systems in 14 other countries in Europe. And one thing that strongly emerged from that report was was the fact that we had some of the least regulated hunting systems in Europe. In fact, you know, we largely work on a voluntary approach, although there is some regulation clearly in places like firearm certificates and things like that. But, you know, most other countries have systems in place to provide for the protection of the public interest. And hunters are used to working within those systems. Indeed, hunters that come over to the UK quite often from Germany and other countries in Europe. They have these systems that they work within in their own countries and they have these systems that have public confidence that the public interest is protected. And it seems to me at the moment that is what we are lacking here and that is why there is so much criticism at the present time being directed towards some of our hunting systems and some of the excesses that people detect. I think the... There's a certain element of naivety that, um, again, some just because another country has a has an approach to it, though, uh, that that is somehow going to be good for us. There, there's no evidence that actually um, those systems actually did, in fact, achieve what what is prescribed for them. Nor indeed that they were actually remotely deployable in this context. We have a very different pattern of of land ownership. Uh, over very different scales as well, and I'll come. I'll come back to your. I'll come back to your point about about bag size. Uh, I don't think the ultimate bag size is the problem here. Um, nor do I think that people are chasing ever bigger bag sizes. I think you you rightly actually said the the advent of more efficacious medication um, has allowed grouse populations not only to 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 have their cycles suppressed to some extent, but actually to to reproduce better. Um, that's not necessarily a, a problem in, in its own right. The fact that a substantial number of grouse can be shot off a piece of ground. I think what that says is, what is the sustainable context for the other, other parts of the system? And I was going to say that I think there is a strong case to be made for grouse moors to entertain birds of prey at favourable conservation status when their core activity, which produces a wide range of sustainability goods, be they both environmental, economic and social, to be main, to be maintained. But there, there is a responsibility to, to have this wide range of goods. But equally, the position that we were in when the Wildlife and Countryside Act and when the, the directors were brought in nearly 40 years ago now with substantially constrained birds of prey populations have moved on. 
I think there is a I think there is a debate to be had about how we how we view that uh, that change and how it should be reflected in the uplands. Some of the things you said about the intensification of more management as well are somewhat one-sided and our colleagues have debated this in the peer-reviewed science and in fact we're sitting in front of the papers that were published in in ibis which um these papers can listeners to this can find these on on the certainly on the gwct's website and possibly on the rspb one as well and maybe they should have a look at those so they get a a balanced view because it's quite easy to to select certain parts of evidence that, that back one's argument up and and not actually reflect the whole. And I think this is a this is a challenge for all parts of the argument, is actually there is a lack of generally evidence in some areas for some of the contentions about the negative impacts of grouse mower management and its intensification. So this is where we think a bespoke licensing scheme, and agree all of those countries have different cultures around hunting and different systems in place, but we think a bespoke licensing scheme in Scotland with the involvement of all stakeholders. I mean, this isn't just about, you know, what the RSPB thinks. Obviously, people that are involved with sporting need to have their involvement in the design of any appropriate system for our, our own circumstances. But in the, way, uh, in the way that you're talking there, we think actually this would help a lot of the sector. It would confirm what best practice looks like. I mean, we could see, for example, similar to some of us are involved with deer management in Scotland. We have a code of sustainable deer management, which sets out clearly what the public interest looks like, um, which has, you know... You know it's, I mean, a, it's an interesting one. No, deer. But, <laughs> but the, you know, Pu- we, public, at least the definition of public interest is something which we won't go into here, but I, I think it's something that really does need to discuss. The Ascent Crofters example it would be a, a really good one of that, of what is in the in the public interest and where does uh, the real evidence lie? It's not it's not for for this, yeah, this but topic. W- but you're right. We need to define what yeah. that is. And things like medication. I mean, with the best will in the world, I mean, it may be good for the sporting community, but it was introduced with, you know, not much other discussion. I have to say, and uh, you know, there are people that are very concerned about the idea of red grouse, a wild bird, being medicated. I mean, you know. Arguably, birds that are being medicated in that way, are they actually wild birds anymore? You know, there are some quite big ethical discussions here, uh, which were never held. And, you know, this is why you will end up with people questioning stuff. If things happen as they see it by the back door, it may be good research behind it, I don't know. But if there isn't that public debate and you don't end up with a firm sort of public view on what good looks like here and what the safeguards are for the public interest, then you will always end up with folk questioning it. And this is why I'm saying, actually, you know, a robust licensing scheme uh, would defend the interests of the good people out there from the excesses of the bad people who we would hope would be marginalised through a, a scheme like that. But it would also provide a clear explanation of what is the agreed, you know, scientific best practice. And we think that would be helpful. I think the there's a debate to be had about the licensing, which will take yeah, place I, in the Scottish government. I'm I'm certainly not going to prejudice that that at this stage. As Duncan said, we will both end up giving evidence on it. Um, it is extremely difficult, uh, and I think possibly uh, sociologically, uh, ethically unwise to try and define. Uh, in in our situation, what is what is good for everybody in every circumstance? Um, very hard thing. It's to a do. very hard thing to do. So we we are engaged, indeed, uh, with Duncan's colleagues on 
pushing uh, out and really trying to to help drive um, best practice and the advice that actually we can give to the practitioners about what is the best way of going about making the decisions for themselves in a sustainable and sensible context. Uh, that is a very, very important job. So Scotland's Moorland Forum uh, has been tasked by Scottish Natural Heritage to produce a range of, of guides called the Principles of Moorland Management. These should be practical approaches for the land management community, in much the same way that the originally very contentious deer management guides were, for what you, are the issues that you should be considering when you take decisions about what you're about to do in any particular context, be it taking a corvid, taking a crow, I should say, or undertaking a piece of muirburn, or managing uh, a mountain hare population. That um, readily adopted... And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's an awful lot to be said for carrot rather than stick is a sensible and potentially very workable strategy that, that we want to see dr driven forward. And we need, as Duncan says, both sides of the argument. Everybody needs to have, a, have an input into this in, in order that we reach a, a happy medium. But it's not going to be uh, a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, I think that that would be extraordinarily disincentivizing, and the last thing that I would like to see uh, are the loss of of our, some of our heathery hills because um, suddenly people say, "Well, actually, that, pff, that's just not worth it." I've seen it happen at Langham. I've seen the disappearance of the mountain hare population at Langham because we lost a sporting management interest. Uh, these are these are actually two two aspects that I, I wanted to get onto, uh, wanted to get onto now. So that if, let's let's just take one of them, which is uh, our our heather moorlands, and very relevant to what, what's just came out last week or the week before, which is what we have to abide by, which is the Muirburn Code for that. Um, maybe Adam, you could just start off by explaining what is the. We've done this before, actually, with Andrew. But what, what is the Muirburn Code, and why do we do it? Muirburn, uh, just for clarity, so that everyone understands, is uh, the Scottish term for uh, controlled heather and grass burning. So it's not just heather burning; it's actually it's the the burning of all all the moorland type of habitats, and it's done for a number of reasons. Uh, but not least of which it's to stimulate a fresh flush of young growth, uh, both of grass in grazing-dominated situations and of heather in sporting and grazing-dominated situations. So that produces a lovely uh, food supply and uh, for uh, mountain hare, red deer, uh, increasingly probably roe deer, red grouse and importantly still sheep. The the other thing it does is it produces uh, that wonderful word heterogeneity. It produces a variability in the structure of the landscape, of the structure of this uh, unique habitat, the, the heather-dominated landscape. And that uh, short short landscape with, with sticks in it and then a, next door to a slightly longer piece is exceptional in supporting uh, different species of invertebrate. So you get completely different assemblages of, of invertebrates using these different long and tall and old and old and young habitats and uh, as well as things that perhaps people don't spend enough time looking at which are, are lichens and mosses um, you get much the greatest diversity of, of these species 
uh, in rotationally burnt stands. There was a, a lovely piece of work that was done at Mar Lodge many years ago um, that, that actually showed that. So muir burn, a very Im- important uh, tool for uh, land managers, uh, be they both farming and, and sporting, and potentially of, of conservation value. It is a, con- a regulated activity in law. So it's actually, there were agricultural codes that actually managed the seasons and periods in which you could actually conduct muir burn. And that was done for lots of different reasons, but not least of which to stop uh, the worst excesses of people simply lighting huge lines of fire and just allowing massive areas of, of, of land to burn out, uh, primarily for agricultural reasons. Um, these regulations were tightened up in the Wildlife and Natural Environment Bill and came in with, a, with a, another series of sort of requirements to actually make sure your neighbours understand when you're burning and, and, and such like. Behind that regulation sat a code a code of practice is, is quite a common approach nowadays. Uh, we have the same thing for snaring. So there is a, a legal um, setup for snaring, and then that, that is expounded and developed in the, in the code of practice. And the Muirburn Code does exactly that for Scotland, and it, and it comes in, in two parts. There's a, there's a part that actually gives you a sort of a policy context, so that's a, a, why, why do we do it and what, what are the sort of the, the broad aims. And then what has been developed, which is the the practical context, so the actual um, hows and whys and wheres of doing it safely uh, and such like. And that bit is somewhat underdeveloped in the current iteration. The, the, that has not been the focus of the current Muirburn Code. I think the current code is very much a, a policy-driven document at the moment. Uh, I think it's it's been structured to reflect a wide variety of voices uh, which is interesting to hear those voices, but it does make a it does make it quite difficult in terms of actually a code which can be used practically on the ground. It's now thrown up a, a very large number of challenges for for land managers. Um, it it throws out the important challenge to land managers, which is think about why you're doing it, uh, because you don't necessarily always have to be burning in some of the places that that you do. Um, through my career, I've seen a lot of very poor muir burn, not to beat about the bush, burning into steep kluk edges, which are almost guaranteed and then, in fact, sometimes do erode. Um, burning uh, into into scrub stands. I've seen some burning at huge spatial scales, nothing to do with sporting. And that is still a significant problem, probably one of the biggest problems actually in muir burn uh, is actually nothing to do with sporting it's agricultural burning in other parts of the country more typically north and west um, so the current muir burn code has to try and capture all these different reasons uh, for, for burning and all the different climates and habitats that we live in and wrap this up in a in a way that reflects our current policy tra- trajectory which is towards making sure that we store as much carbon we release as little carbon into the atmosphere as we as we possibly do this is broadly a good thing um whilst actually also trying to maintain the value that we get out of this extremely powerful uh, activity which in some cases can actually be beneficial from preventing the loss of carbon ironically so there are research papers which show that the biochar as it's known the charcoal that's left behind is a, is a locked up store of carbon 
and that there are there's obviously a, a role to be played of Muirburn in preventing very very damaging wildfires as well setting off so if you're if you're removing that fuel from the system on a reasonably regular basis in a controlled manner, you can reduce wildfire. And if I could just uh, draw you before before coming to you, Duncan, if I could just draw you, Adam, to the the aspects of our heather moorlands, which is actually ha- how rare that habitat is in the global scheme of things. Uh, and following on from that, the role that moorland management as part of driven grouse shooting plays in maintaining that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Having spent most of my career in in the heathery dominated uplands, um, I can almost for, sometimes forget that um, Britain and Ireland have been described as the world's greatest moorland countries. I mean, this is something that we bring to the the, the whole globe: um, the ability to stand and look out on the ed- on the edge of dwarf shrub heath, not just heather, but the heaths and the berries and things across these beautiful expanses of, of open landscape. Um, we we see these because of thousands, not just hundreds, but thousands of years of man management. So what we have in our heather uplands is a very much a cultural landscape going back a long, long time. Um, and they cover about 50% of Scotland, moorland habitats in the round that's just heather heather and grass dominated systems and many of these are actually designated so they're actually recognized as being significantly important both to scotland but actually in things like the international conservation designations we we have our our global uh, representation of these things as well and that's important in the context of what we're just talking about in terms of muirburn because fire uh, used by man and grazing pressure are the two principal tools that maintain this man dominant man induced climax community as the ecologists call it so man stops this habitat from turning in broadly speaking into something else so that we can actually enjoy the rather unique range of species that we do get on it it's not a high biodiversity environment but it is quite a unique assemblage environment. And that is something that we can actually cherish. Duncan, what is your view and your take on the way that the, the Merlin is management with regard to burning and that sort of mosaic of, uh, of heather that everybody is familiar with in the uplands here? So genuine, generally, as, as Adam describes, you know, the best outcome for biodiversity, certainly in the uplands, is heterogeneity of habitat. That's a mixture of habitats. And certainly in that context, we, sh- we would say that mix is not just about heather uh, lengths. It should also be about scrub habitats, uh, pine woods and other habitats that are actually extremely scarce as well. Um, in fact, rarer than heather moorland in Scotland. I mean, pine wood, for example, we own the largest fragment of pine wood. Uh, in uh, in Scotland at our Abernethy Forest Reserve in the Cairngorms. There should be large other parts of the uh, the Cairngorms that should actually have more pinewood habitats on it if it wasn't for Muirburn burning off the scrub and so forth and the tree regeneration. But Muirburn can also help, perversely, can help tree regeneration by creating the seedbed, provided then the trees are left to grow, of course. But other habitats that we really miss in Scotland in comparison to other countries are some of the montane uh, uh, dwarf shrub heath habitats that you get at high altitudes. Again, that's 
can be due to muir burn, but also things like deer browsing mm. uh, have a major uh, impact there. Uh, po- possibly climate change. Yeah, increasingly, climate change. In- increasingly probably in the future. But there is growing interest in out there in restoring more of these kind of really rare habitats that we are missing. I mean, our Cal- native Caledonian pine forest, a lot of effort has gone into restoring uh, the, the, the original fragments that we still have. A lot of, of regeneration. Of, of that habitat. I think just just in terms of Muirburn, I think the biggest the biggest change which has happened in the Muirburn Code, quite rightly, is the, the the greater emphasis on peatland conservation, which you know has has grown massively important in importance as we recognise what an important carbon store peatlands are, and Scotland in UK terms, and I mean places like the Flow Country are of world importance for their car- their carbon stores, and we have to treat these places carefully, uh, and we do know that burning. Uh, over peatlands can cause issues. It needs to be done very sensitively, if at all. Um, as Adam says, I think some of the biggest concerns, and this is where the other, the old Muirburn Code, I think, really fell down, is that it was very much directed towards sporting management. If you looked in it, all the images were about sporting management, burning on grouse moors and so forth, when actually, and the English Code is a bit better than this, that it actually covers grass burning as well, and burning for agricultural purposes. And I think some of the biggest concerns out there are some of these big fires you get in agricultural uh, circumstances, people without the proper kit and, uh, and perhaps doing it in the wrong conditions. And we know from reports from the Scottish Wild, of the Scottish uh, Fire Service and so forth, that you know poorly managed muir burn can lead to wildfire. And People need to be doing this I with saw a lot a bit more of that care. Last, last year, yeah, I think I think quite a lot of that was actually non 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 sporting agricultural small agricultural fires. Uh, any, any gamekeeper who's ever set a has ever set a fire will have had probably one that's got away uh, from, away from it. They happen. Yeah. They very rarely turn into really big wildfires for two reasons. One is they generally catch up with them quite quickly, and so do their mates. And two, they generally are burning into a, into a rotationally burnt landscape. So there's a there's a fire fuel limit, and they have the kit, and they have no, that's right. So their mates and their and their kit, and their and their and the landscape generally. So fire is a is a powerful tool, and with that power comes responsibility. And I think like any great superhero, it's like any it's like any great super Spider Man. Um, the 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 trick at the moment is to is to help people think about what they're doing in a way that doesn't um, disincentivize it or make it a ridiculous proposition. Um, so we're we're looking forward to seeing how the code evolves. I think one thing that is is a useful change actually um, in best practice regulation is the advent actually of of the PDF. Nowadays, we don't have to print something in paper, which then stays there in paper for many years. You can actually have a rolling, a living document. running, yeah. absolutely living document that keeps on going. And I think that's, as more evidence comes forward, and, and there will always be more evidence, I, I think, there, there, there will be more evidence on um, how does burning affect uh, water coloration or carbon content and runoff. There's uh, a lot of work to do on that, though, isn't there? Huge amount of work to do. It's entirely unclear which direction it goes. Um, you might well see the effect very clearly in the immediate term, in the immediate short term, and very close to a stream. But it's entirely unclear whether you see it at a truly landscape scale over a 10-year period. 
uh, there's a, there's an enormous amount of it. So, but we need to have the flexibility in the way that we approach our techniques, and particularly techniques that have yielded these fabulous landscapes over thousands, but particularly hundreds of years, and that we don't suddenly just bring the shutters down on them just in case. But what, a, what we are seeing is a growing interest in the public, which is fantastic from from the point of view of those who uh, love our uplands, like mm. both of us do, who are, you know, uh, considering what public benefits the uplands so actually more deliver. Engaged, you feel yeah. like people are more engaged, you know, yeah. that's where a lot of, of course, a lot of our mm. water supplies come from. Um, you know, it's important not only for sporting, but for agriculture, biodiversity, a whole range of uh, other public benefits that derive from it. So peatland conservation is one of those. But, you know, we are, we, to for so long, the uplands have been the poor relation. And uh, we know a lot about uh, lowland agriculture, its impacts on biodiversity. Our two organisations have worked hugely over the years on developing prescriptions for agri-environment and measures for lowland farmland birds. But still so much is unknown about uh, the importance of our uplands. We don't know how many, you know, what what all the bird populations look like and let alone the invertebrates, lichens they're hard, and, they're very hard and all survey. the other things Ex- you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. We, Britain's benefited from having a forestry commission, of course. I mean, that's, that's driven a lot of economic activity and... Latterly, of course, the Forestry Commission Scotland has become a very environmentally aware organisation. They have championed woodlands, and as a result, we have a a very strong woodland expansion policy in Scotland. Um, we don't have, and never have had, a moorland or even an open landscape commission, one to champion those parts of our landscape. Um, and there is, I think, a real challenge uh, in the future for for Scotland, um, particularly perhaps, that uh, something we've talked about, or I think Duncan mentioned earlier on, about fragmentation. He, I think you used the word fragments of woodland, in fact. Uh, it, it will become quite possible that we may start to see more and more fragments of moorland as well, and actually fragments of open land generally, which are not or are going to start to run increasingly into difficulties over what is a functioning ecosystem in that context. Tiny little chunk of moor, how easy is it really going to be to make that work as a moor and and develop all of the aspects that make a moor happen, which are sporting, farming, wildlife, um, these other provisions of clean water and things. I I, I was going to sort of throw that question out to you. We may have... Um, certain types of habitat like the, the, the Caledonian pine forest which there are lots of re- regeneration p- projects ongoing for that which are relatively rare in Scotland and you, you can name a couple of other types of habitat as well but in the global context I, th- I might have this number wrong but we have about 75% of the heather in the world so in a global context is it not more important that our not only focus but that we don't start restricting what is currently 75% of Heather Merland? Do we really want to lose any of that when it's so significant on a global context? Uh, and well, we, we, we've seen with uh, uh, in, in, uh, being incentivized by the Scottish government with regard to increased tree planting, which I think is what you were alluding to, to earlier, uh, Duncan, that seems to be something that we are going to see more of. And I, even the last two years, I've seen more of it. 
right up onto the the edges of what is and will I, I would think probably in twenty years where I've seen summer planting will no longer be Merland, Heather Merland. Well, all I would say in response is, you know, monocultures of whatever, be it Sitka spruce or be it Heather, are probably not the best outcome uh, for biodiversity. I mean, we would be looking for something more diverse. I mean, you will always have open areas. I mean, the area that we're heavily involved with in the flow country, for example, uh, was inappropriately planted with trees in the 1950s and 1960s. And we have a massive program of tree removal up there. We know around every forest mm. block that, that you have, going back to predation, uh, we have a one yep. one kilometre boundary pretty well around every forestry block. Very good block, bit of work by your guys. Which, which result, is resulting in predation pressure on the, on the wading bird populations and other species for which ground nesting birds for which the flow country is so important. There will always be parts of our uplands that are unforested. You know, there will always be areas that are managed as grouse more. But actually, you know, there are large areas that could be given over in our view. Uh, and it would be a better outcome for wildlife, particularly actually in the north and west highlands where there used to be more tree cover. Uh, native woodland could have a major role to play in increasing the uh, productivity of these landscapes, many of which have been hugely degraded by centuries of burning, overgrazing, be it by domestic livestock or by deer, you know, and actually could be improved from a biodiversity point of view. Well, I mean, the, the north and west, there isn't really much in terms of uh, driven grouse shooting going on. North and west, not by comparison to the east. No, but equally there. I mean, there but, is so scope there, for there more is pine more... wood expansion. We know the Cairngorms National Park have, you know, have plans to, you know, develop more riparian woodland, link up uh, blocks of uh, pine wood. I mean, that would be an excellent outcome for Capacaley, for example. I think this, where the, we where the, we know that their population is limited by fragmented habitats. It's a fifty or sixty year challenge, so I fear that Duncan, you and I won't see the, the merit the merit of that. But uh, with some of those changes. Um, However, we need to have a sense of reality in the work that we talked about earlier on about predator control and its value. We need to be very clear that if you're going to increase those kinds of habitats, where, which are sometimes extremely good for supporting predator assemblages and where predator control is also quite difficult, we need to actually man up and say there has to be a component part of actually making sure that predator, that predator predation pressure is, which is the key thing, that's the whole, it's the predation pressure in the round, is actually a managed aspect. There's no point in hoping that actually just allowing scrub to, uh, birch wood to expand across um, ascent or whatever it might be, is somehow going to be suddenly better for biodiversity. Well, it's, it's probably not, because it'll be full of crows and, and foxes and, and a wide range of other species. The landscape will change. It, still it may managed. not necessarily be better. Yeah, okay. And I think there is a lack, there is generally a bit of a lack of evidence um, that, that this change is necessarily going to come with some goods. That that concern was actually reflected in the uh, Sustainable Scottish Moorlands report that the that this, the SNH's Scientific Advisory Committee received in the last year and a half, uh, that actually some of these changes are not necessarily well evidenced as being likely to be better for Scotland. There are some things, I think, um, perhaps a little controversially in some places, that actually should be done and uh, I've always had a passion probably due to my time in Scandinavia for um, mini woods so these small montane woodlands dominated by 
certain species of birches and willows and, and, and even juniper assemblages and things. I think that there is certainly a place for that in the Scottish landscape. Um, that's, but then making sure that that happens is a combination of getting your grazing pressure right, both sheep and deer, managing your muir burns so that you're not burning into the kluch sides, and actually then also perhaps, perhaps being rewarded for actually ensuring that that happens by some acknowledgement that downstream you may be having an effect on, on runoff so that you're part of a, a broad landscape scale management package for a, a wider range of ecosystem service. But I think some of these mini woods, these could be incorporated into our landscape pretty easily. Once it starts to get bigger than that, that's challenging. And everything that's been discussed here, it it boils down to the fact that we as humans will be involved in the management of them in some way. And whenever we are being involved in the management, it has to be paid for in some form. So I, I suppose this gets to uh, one of the, the points here when we're looking at the uplands is that if you don't have a mechanism for utilizing that landscape in a way that can be funded, currently a lot of the uplands is funded in terms of its management, whether that, and specifically Muirburn, by the fact that there is driven grouse shooting. I, I, I realize that that has been a core focus of this. I actually, in terms of what I enjoy doing myself, I'm far more likely to stick a rifle over my shoulder and go stalking than um, be actually on a grouse mall. But that it tends to be where we spend a lot of our time focused because it, it, there's a lot of people end up and organizations and views butt heads there. But if we don't have that, then how do we how do we fund that management? And I suppose that is something that we need to keep in our minds. And I guess we would all agree about well, that around the yeah, table. Yeah, I mean, you're touching you're touching on rewilding as well, which, uh, you know, a lot of people are now talking about has got a lot of common currency. But actually, if you scrutinize some of the rewilding projects in Scotland, they almost all involve some human management and mostly deer management in a uh, place like you know Glenfeshie for example or some of the other sort of case studies of uh, of sort of uh, rewilding projects I mean our own land at Abernethy is often cited as a real rewilding project but nothing could really be further from the truth that uh, we've never regarded it as that we have a vision at Abernethy to restore the pine wood over about 200 years and the montane scrub and the natural tree line up that side of the Cairngorms in combination with some of our neighbours. Um, but I have to say, you know, the estate now employs more people than it did when it was a traditional sporting estate. Um, it actually involves a lot of management. I mean, we do a lot of deer management, but we're also doing woodland and visitor management and a uh, whole range of other things. It's a very div diversified operation. And actually, that's what you find and are increasingly finding on some of, you know, the estates in Scotland. They are moving in this more diversified uh, direction, uh, whereas it used to be mainly a sporting enterprise with maybe some farming on the lower ground. Generally, most... Uh, estates in Scotland these days, perhaps in contrast to some of the equivalents in England where, you know, there is largely a grouse moor farming type operation. You know, we are getting more diversified uh, businesses in place. And, you know, I think that's the future. Um, I realise that we've uh, I've taken up quite a bit of time already. Now, there's just one topic that I, I just wanted to, to 
to speak about before we bring this to a close, and that is mountain hair. Now, I, I, as we get to probably February 2018, we're going to see it in the papers again because that tends to be a time where, uh, in terms of the part of the year where you're allowed to shoot mountain hair, that tends to be where a lot of them are are shot. Uh, Adam, can you just paint a picture for our listeners? Mountain hair in Scotland, because that's where, that's where we're sitting. So it's a small white fluffy bunny. <laughs> oh, no, sorry, yeah. see what you mean. <laughs> uh, in terms of populations, where they're found, yeah. and why do we have this? You know, there is a very, a very strong controversy with regard to the, the control of uh, control and management of them. Sure. So mountain hair, uh, the Latin name is Lepus timidus, uh, quite a different species to the snowshoe hare in North America, not the same thing. The, the mountain hare is a, is a European species because broadly uh, right across Europe, uh, isolated fragmented populations, the further south you go, uh, there's an alpine population, for example. And a lot of the um, protection that came to the mountain hare, the, the requirement really for sustainable management of the mountain hare population came because of that very fragmented alpine population, which was under significant hunting pressure when the Habitats Directive was going through in 1992. Um, it's a uh, it's not an upland specialist. The mountain hare, forgive its name. I mean, the blue hare or the white hare is unique. Um, well, it's not unique, but it's one of the only three species in the UK that changes white in the winter. I'll leave the listeners to guess the other two. Um, <laughs> We've got them. Uh, We've got yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stoughton ptarmigan. Uh, yeah. very good. I very love ptarmigan. <laughs> one of my favourite birds, actually, in this country. Very good. Um, so, but they they are not they're not mountain specialists in that context. In fact, we used to find mountain hares looking at the way back into history across a huge variety of habitats and across a very very massive part of the UK. It appears that actually the range expansion of the brown hare, ironically, which is a, a non-native species to the UK, has probably helped constrain the, the mountain hare to, to, to the, the uplands, uplands yeah. where the brown hare simply doesn't get enough forage quality to actually su- survive and thrive. Although, that said, even in the last 30 years, I've noticed brown hare range expanding. Um, so when I first arrived in, and lived in Strathspey, brown hares were occasional residents in the bottom in the better fields down at the bottom of the strath when i left 15 20 years later there were brown hairs well out onto the hill uh, which is probably reflecting some kind of of climate change regime um so the mountain hare this is now an upland now an upland species uh, particularly in scotland there are small remnant populations in northern england but i think we can pretty much a little bit like the time again, claim this one as being a pretty much a Scottish species. The vast majority of the population is now left up here. And from that point of view, we have an important duty of care. Uh, what's quite interesting about mountain hares in Scotland is that they exist at enormously higher densities, particularly in the core of their range, than they do elsewhere in Europe. And they are almost certainly benefiting from the management that primarily goes into moorlands for sheep, deer and grouse. And it's the the habitat management that we've already talked about, the, the burning and the grazing which produces these young flushes of vegetation, coupled with the reduction in predation pressure. So the, the, the fact that foxes, uh, to some extent crows, but also stoats and weasels are, are, are taken on these hills means that mountain hare densities can be enormous in Scotland compared to the rest of their range, sometimes 10 times greater. 
And they can fluctuate quite a lot, can't they? And yes, the cyclical population is then uh, uh, almost an inevitability. So you get very, very large changes at the peak of the, d- the density. They, they, they can be 10, 10 times greater. And they can fall back down to maybe two, two or three times what a typical European population does. And that's over a variable period. Um, it, it might be sort of seven, eight, nine years that you go from a peak to a trough in a mountain hare population and then back up again. But it's, it's quite quite variable. So the, the natural fluctuation appears to be driven by a number of different things, uh, but research that... Uh, a colleague of mine did um, so certainly suggests a role of parasitism. So, like a lot of animals, they carry gut parasites, and these that, can that be related to the, the densities? The yeah, density well, correct. So, what what we did was actually experimentally reduce the number of gut parasites that the hares carried, and that that affected the the breeding success and the survivability of the hares. Now. We didn't do it long enough to actually suppress or change a population cycle, which you'd have had to have done for a longer period of time over a very big scale. But it's reasonable to assume that that was probably an important part of the population um, dynamic. The mountain hare is um, also fulfills a couple of other very important roles in Scotland. It's an important grazer. Um, so it, it browses on... A very very similar range of species to the red grouse. Interestingly enough, one's feathery, the other's furry. Uh, it's a very important um, source of biomass um, in its own right, and that means it's an important prey resource. Um, it appears in a lot of, um, particularly in, in in a lot of prey in a lot of predator diets, and it can be quite an important source of food for the golden eagle. Not by any manner of means the only or possibly the most apparently looking at the literature the driver but it can be locally quite an important food source and last but not least it has this role in parasite mediation so it's also host to a parasite which um, is found on red grouse and on sheep and on deer and on waders and a wide range of species including humans and that's the tick um, being talked about a lot right now with uh, the increased uh, realisation of the impact of Lyme disease. Correct. So the mountain hare is a fascinating species. It's got lots and lots of connections and inter- interconnections with habitat, parasites, parasites and climate, predation, uh, the role of management and, and supporting it, what is a natural population versus a, an unnatural population. Um, how does management actually protect it? Because... Um, it's pretty evident from work that we've done with Scottish Natural Heritage that actually range contraction has been the main reason for fewer mountain hares in Scotland over the last 30 or 40 years. It's not it's not loss of, of, of density, but it's actually contraction at the edge of the range where, in fact, agricultural intensification and woodland expansion appear ultimately to be pretty bad things for, for mountain hares. So the the hare population is constraining back to the to the centre ground to this moorland ground where they where they are thriving. Um, the irony then is that supported at higher densities by the very management that they enjoy most, the sporting opportunity is is there. So people enjoy some people enjoy shooting them for sport. And they have another impact on sport, which is through this parasite-mediated transmission of the disease called Lyping Ill. Um, 
This was experimentally indicated in, in a study, and its exact operation is then quite difficult to, to tease out in the wider context, but it's pretty clear that um, mountain hares are not the main mediator of, of tick-borne diseases where there are other very much larger hosts. Like deer. Deer and sheep are the classic ones. So if you haven't got a treated sheep population and you've got a substantially large red deer population, the mountain hares are not the problem for the red grouse. But when you start to constrain the tick numbers on those other two big host species, there is a reasonable chain of evidence which appears to suggest that there's, there's likely that mountain hares could in fact mediate this impact. It's not by any manner of means extremely clear um, that the, the, the relationship between mountain hare management and disease control in the red grouse. But given that we can support very high densities of mountain hares through the very moorland management that is going into red grouse, it doesn't seem unreasonable at this stage to be able to take out mountain hares in, in sometimes quite reason, apparently reasonable numbers and then leave quite a lot of mountain hares behind. I suppose, sorry. No, and the last thing I was going to say was, that's a critical point, because those are very broad terms that I've just used. And one of the things that, that is desperately needed is a better way of assessing how many hares you have got before you start to control them, either for sport or for management, and after, so that we can be sure that there is a sustainability. Yeah, the harvest of software. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Uh, correct. And... That's a piece of work that we're we're working on with Scottish Natural Heritage at the moment, but there are lot there are lots of things that Moors can and some indeed do already do, which is take index counts, just record the number of hairs you see, so at least you have an idea that this year or in this season I am at very many hairs, rather than at very few, and then take a take a a balanced judgment call about what you're trying to achieve with your with your mountain hair population. Yeah, and I'd, I'd, I'll let you um, have your take on that in a second, Duncan. But the one thing I would just add to that is that the actual grazing pressure of mountain hares in some circumstances can be quite considerable, especially in, we mentioned triple SIs earlier, some of the juniper, uh, the areas of juniper, especially up uh, sort of in D side, they are controlled there um, specifically for the juniper by license from SNH. So there is the, the, the sporting aspect of it, but there is a, a lot of the hair culling that goes on is actually for the management of, of the landscape beyond that. Um, so I think it's, it's important to, to point that out. But what is your take on that, Duncan? Because it, it, is, it has become very controversial in terms of the way the public view it. Uh, I only know from, I, I spend a lot of time walking in the hills and I only know what I see which is that if I'm walking in you know, heavily managed areas, I see a lot of hares, shed loads. But if I go on the west coast, uh, where it might just be, there's not really any very many grouse there, and it's, it's mainly deer, I don't see a lot of hares. So as Adam was saying earlier, they do enjoy that habitat and they thrive in it. So I mean, what, what is your take on it? So first of all, this isn't about hunting of mountain hares. I mean, this has been going on for years I think the issue that has really emerged and the concern, the public concern, is about these large-scale culls uh, that have been widely reported. That is, and this is again linked to the intensification of grouse moor management and people doing things off their own bat without uh, much consultation, 
no discussion. I'm looking here also at the likes of Scottish Natural Heritage, who should have had a greater handle on what was going on here as the statutory agency with a responsibility here. The key point I think that Adam forgot to mention there was that mountain hares are protected under European law, under the habitats regulations, as a species requiring sustainable management. And the big the big issue that we've got at the present time is that we fundamentally don't know even how to count these animals. So we don't know how many there are. So we don't know whether these culls are sustainable or whether the hunting indeed that's going on is sustainable. So along with 10 other conservation ENGOs, uh, we pressed for a moratorium on the culling of mountain hares until we get a better handle on how to count them and how to actually tell whether management's sustainable. And again, going back to the licensing arrangements that would be in place in other countries, you know, in most countries there is a requirement for landowners to make hunting cull returns to the statutory nature conservation agency, which again in turn informs what sustainable management of particular species, in this case the mountain hare, might look like. And we are, we have none of that. So we think a licensing system would help with that kind of stuff. So nobody's disputing that mountain hares are commoner on the grouse moor areas and that's their favoured habitat. But what we are hearing, and people who have studied mountain hares in the past, we have one uh, study particularly in northeast Scotland, which reports quite significant declines of mountain hares, even on grouse moor areas. So, you know, there is little doubt in our minds that these ber- these animals have declined. I mean, the reports even from uh, the Breeding Bird Survey, which also reports some mammals, even though it's it's data that has a wide confidence limit, suggests that mountain hare populations, even in the best areas, for them have been declining. And we have a responsibility for sustainable management. And frankly, the people that are carrying out these big population cull types of management don't know what impact their management activity is having on uh, the mountain hare population. And arguably, it's questionable whether even what they're doing is having a benefit you know, the desired benefit. Now, in 2014, uh, GWCT, Scottish Land and Estates, and SNH uh, produced a document which called for voluntary restraint in terms of mountain hair culling. I mean, to be honest, we see little evidence that that is actually being implemented on the ground. And we still get reports uh, of large mountain hair culls happening again which have been reported in the media and elsewhere so this this is the concern and all we're all we're looking for certainly from the conservation organization's perspective is a framework which again you know provides confidence that uh, mountain hare populations are being managed sustainably people are doing the right counting collecting the data and the information if they are planning to manage hare populations which is not putting those populations at risk I don't think that's too much to ask. Adam, in, in terms of, uh, you, you actually mentioned earlier, it's, it, they're a very difficult species to count, but there is being, work being done to try and establish how we can uh, understand exactly what the populations are better. Should um, returns of culls be more available? Uh, I don't see any reason why that shouldn't be the case. Uh, and just to add one last point, is it not better unless you can show very clearly a negative impact on what has what is going on and what has been going on for 
a hundred plus years that it is better to maintain what is going on before you change it rather than change it now and then find out it was a consequence that you didn't expect would happen i think the the evidence would point in the direction that that is a sustainable proposition i I can't see that a moratorium is likely to at this stage likely to enhance the conservation status of of mountain hares it would appear to be a, a positive disincentive to continue to to undertake management in these areas that the mountain hares are benefiting from in their in their own senses and yes mountain hares are, are, are a very difficult species to count accurately i mean to you know half a hare per square kilometer but you can pretty easily tell, you use the technical term, a shed load. <laughs> you can pretty easily tell when there is a shed load of hares. I've seen them, yeah. <laughs> and when there isn't a shed load of hares. So that's what I was touching on with this idea of an index count. And I think the the idea that um, estates are simply unaware of the sustainable nature of the of, of the current position of the mountain hare population on their ground is is just not correct. But they it's are, not just about them, Adam. We have a, a duty to report to Europe on this kind of stuff that actually, Brexit aside, you know, <laughs> that, that actually the management that's going on yeah. is sustainable. And at in the fact, moment, we can't demonstrate that. Well, I don't know, because in, I mean, SNH have, have made those reports, and in 2007 they reported the mountain hare population as being um, slightly unfavourable, mainly because they weren't being monitored rather than because of any concerns about the population. In 2013, they reported them as being favourable. Yeah, so, which is a bit of a stretch when we can't count them, which uh, well, I have to say, uh, I don't think SNH's track record on mountain air conservation is is great. And, and yet we uh, still have a lot of mountain <laughs> hares. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, I think there is a, there's a, a danger here of trying to apply a precautionary principle when, in fact, caution in this instance when you step out into the real world, doesn't appear to make a very great deal of sense. But you yourself have called for restraint. You have signed up to, in 2014, you signed up to a statement with SLE and G- and uh, yeah. SNH calling for restraint. That is a precautionary approach until until we actually have some, you know, accurate measures for counting these animals I think, and understanding whether management's sustainable. I think, that, I think there's a quite a difference between our restraint, which is a sustainable harvesting position, and the call for a moratorium on all on all taking of mountain hares. That's not restraint. That's just stopping. No, no, we're um, calling for a moratorium on these big scale culls. How would you define that, though? How would you define big yeah. scale? If, if you're saying that that's what the moratorium is on, only big scale, how do you how do you define? Well, that? I think what we're talking about actually population reduction, which some of these culls seemingly are doing, uh, is actually illegal, probably under the habitats regulations. These big culls. So we would we would look to SNH as the scientific advisors to conservation advisors to government to actually set some definitions here. You know, they need to take a more proactive role in this discussion. And and this, again, comes back to the point in most other countries, the statutory nature conservation agencies would have much more involvement in decisions that are being made of this type where you might be culling. I mean, this is a keystone species. Let's not forget that. In the, in the Scottish uplands. I mean, Adam's identified it's important as a grazing... I don't think any species pre- would go extinct if no. the mountain hare went extinct. But it's important for a whole range of... And, you know, just having people taking decisions uh, which appear not to be informed by good 
uh, evidence uh, in terms of numbers and risk and things like that is just not a way to proceed. It might not be, I think Byron touched on an important point, it might not be evidence that is uh, publicly available, but I come back to the point that I think the idea that estates are not aware of the current context, the current shape, dynamic of their mountain air population is is just untrue. I mean, many sporting managers are exceptional naturalists. They will have a good handle on the on the current state of play with their hair. The fact that they can't actually say there are forty seven and a half mountain hairs on that one hundred hectares of ground is not necessarily a constraint on them being able to judge whether... Or make it publicly available, then perhaps people might have a bit more confidence in it. I mean, the RSPB, several years ago, took it upon ourselves. We do this every year and publish details of all of the uh, vertebrate control, the management of predators and control of uh, management of deer that we do on our own land. As I say, this is common practice in, in most countries. Scandinavian countries produce very good data on the number of uh, animals that are killed each year by hunters. You know, this should be publicly available information. It shouldn't be for a few people to hold uh, behind the scenes. This, in turn, as I say, informs sustainable management. It's vital, vital data. Uh, I, I would agree that a, a transparency in what we do, and I use the, the royal we, what, what everybody is doing in the countryside can only be for the good if it is viewed sensibly and without knee-jerk reactions, which we very often see, unfortunately, with the media, and that's something that is very difficult to avoid. Uh, One of the reasons that we are probably uh, having, in terms of the shooting community uh, as a whole, not just in this country, but globally, one of the reasons that we are having some of the problems in terms of public perception that we have is because there maybe hasn't been this transparency, transparency, but I'm talking over 100 years. Uh, so the more of that, it becomes very difficult to argue with what you're doing. But equally, I would I would err on the, the side of caution of not wanting to be in a position where we're saying we should 100% stop something or ban something or take actions uh, on a practice which has been going on without really knowing what the consequences would be. But that's, I mean, I've made it clear, that's certainly not our position. I'm just We we accept that hares are a legitimate quarry species. I mean, what we find find pretty difficult, though, is these big, large-scale population reduction culls, which could be, I mean, arguably illegal under the European uh, directive, the habitats regulations. Uh, And also there is a duty to actually report on it. And to be honest... uh, SNH have been missing there. I mean, the, the reports that Adam's referring to, I'm not quite sure how they kind of reached those conclusions without accurate information. Well, because they, they, they base it on, on their expert judgment, on the information that they do get from discussions with the land managers in the background. But I mean, you'll need to ask SNH about how, how to do it. But there, there we are. And I think the fact that it would be a challenge indeed, I think, for any member of the public, anybody who listens to this podcast, to actually step off a major road that runs through a heather-dominated area and not see a mountain hare in Scotland at the moment. It's it's been a pretty good year for mountain hares. It has this year, yeah. And Uh, long may it continue. And on that that fine note, I think think we will end this podcast. Uh, Gentlemen, it's been fantastic having you on. I've really appreciated your time. I think that anybody who listens to this is going to find it highly informative. 
uh, I think these kind of discussions are exactly the kind of discussions that we, we need to be having out in the open. That's the whole point behind this podcast is to allow not just we, we have a lot of people listen to this who are not necessarily shooters, but in the shooting community, outside the shooting community, understand exactly what's going on from both sides of the fence, see where there are differences, see where there's common ground and m- most importantly, how we can move forward together because I think that uh, it is only by collaborating and working together that we will actually be able to um, have a future, of, most importantly for our wildlife, which is really what this boils down to. Yeah. So thank yeah. you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for another two weeks. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram and you can check out our website, thepacebrothers.com. All information you need about us and the show is all on there. You, can, Depending on how you listen to right now, there is other options available. Oh, the main one is iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Uh, it is also uploaded to YouTube. An audio version of every show is uploaded to uh, YouTube as well. Uh, some of them have video, but not all of them. Um, so there's no excuse not to listen to the show. Uh, I wanted to just give a shout out to a film which we watched this morning uh, by a production company in South Africa called Black Bean Productions. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was called. But if you go and have a look at Podbean Productions, just Google them and have a look at some of their work. It just it blew me away this morning. I had, don't know if I've seen anything within the hunting conservation space that has been put together quite so well really extraordinary so go and check out black bean production i'm just trying to find the the film right now as we speak well i will remind people while daryl's having a look uh, of what we said at the start which is we've launched our film festival which is actually why we were looking at the black bean productions uh film this morning uh go and check that out on facebook search for dna film festival all the infos there on our website thepacebrothers.com under the film tab you will find film festival or dna film festival click that there's a press release in there and a whole spiel about um, how you can enter what we're expecting we want great stories about what you do and why you do it as a modern hunter it's called the wildlife protector on youtube look it up it's four minutes long uh, you'll you'll really enjoy it. Trust me, you will. Uh, and I think that's it. I th- I'm uh, sure there was something I was going to add. Was there? Yeah, it's been it's been quite a long show today, but I think uh, absolutely worth your time. As we said at the start, this is one of those that you need to share. Yeah. Whether you're into hunting or fishing, or absolutely not, whether you're in, whether you spend a lot of time in the countryside or most of your time in the city. I think it's incredibly relevant because you're going to see all of the issues that we talk about here they're come all, up in the papers. They're all going to come radio. up in the papers. They're going to be debated in Parliament. The, it, all these issues are going to come up, and and I guarantee the the newspaper articles will be shared left, right, and centre with sensational headlines on them. And we're talking about them now. Yeah, we are, and hopefully in a much more level-headed, calm way. And that is the point behind what we did today. That's what I was going to say. Uh, we um, we were talking about uh, the podcast community uh, on our last show and uh, the, the new uh, podcasts that have come out, Countryside Alliance and also the Yorkshire Gent podcast. And uh, we're uh, very thankful that we got an invite onto the Yorkshire Gent podcast, which we yes, will we be did. going on. I think uh, December. December time. We are extraordinarily busy in the next uh, two months. Uh, but thank you very much for the invite and it, like we said it is an awesome community and sharing sharing love is it, good it is uh, 
go and check out other podcasts. In fact, if you go, uh, if you go back into iTunes and search for our podcast, into the it, wilderness, it comes up with suggestions at the bottom. It does, and I think they're based on what other people other people subscribe, subscribe to. to as well as ours. So um, often it's I think when you go to Joe plot, Rogan jo- comes up, jo- Journal of Mountain Hunting always comes up, Joe Rogan comes up, uh, Meat Eater comes up, and. I think Yorkshire Gent now, Yorkshire comes, Gent up now comes up. So there you go. Those are the things that all our listeners are listening to. And that is it. Don't forget that this podcast is supported and brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. <laughs>